This is the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Binance Coin, or BNB, was launched as a cryptocurrency in 2017 to fund the building and rollout of the Binance Crypto platform. Binance was founded by Shangpeng Zhao in China and has grown into the world's largest crypto exchange in three years. It differs from other exchanges in that it started dealing exclusively in cryptocurrencies rather than fiat, but has since evolved to cater to other types of currencies such as the pound and the US dollar. That's one aspect of the business. Binance also has its own token or currency called Binance Coin, or BNB for short, and it's got its own blockchain called Binance Chain. Binance Coin traded at 10 US cents when it was launched in July 2017. This week, it traded at $257. All we can say about that is that it's made many people very wealthy. Binance Coin has grown into the third largest cryptocurrency after Bitcoin and Ethereum as measured by market cap. And many people are betting that Binance could win the race to dominate the emerging decentralized finance or DeFi space. Now, Binance is not a decentralized exchange. It's a centralized exchange, meaning it has owners and a centralized point of control. So where does it stand in this race to control the new financial order being architected around cryptos? Joining us to discuss this is Brenton Nyker, Country Manager for Binance in South Africa and Kenya. First of all, welcome, Brenton. I believe we're talking to you all the way from Durban, right? That is correct, Kieran. And it's always a pleasure to speak to the MoneyWeb audience. Um, and like you said, we've got some very interesting things to speak about today. I'll tell you what I want to kick off with. What's astonishing about Binance Coin is what happened to it just since January this year. Less than three months, it's up nearly 700%. What's going on? So, you know, absolutely, Kieran. Funny enough, I, I was having a chat to one of my colleagues yesterday evening about how during the course of December, Binance Coin was actually trading at, at sub $30, so $29 somewhat cents, you know, just in December as well. So I think, you know, if we take a look under the hood at what the fundamentals are that have driven the sort of price appreciation in BNB, a lot of users will know that I think it was September 1st exactly last year. So September 1st, 2020. Binance released an upgrade to their Binance chain, where it is now the Binance smart chain. And, you know, NFTs, DeFi and the like have been all the rage as of late. And the core platform that users had available to them was generally to build these applications or decentralized applications known as dApps on Ethereum. And that was sort of the main value proposition of the Ethereum network. Well, with the launch of Binance Smart Chain in September of last year, we now have a competitor to what's known as the Ethereum Virtual Machine, which allows these applications to run on their blockchain. Binance Smart Chain, launched in September last year, is 100% EVM compatible, which essentially means you can take your Ethereum applications and just drop them directly onto the Binance Smart Chain, and they work perfectly. So with this whole buzz about decentralized finance, NFTs, decentralized applications, we've seen Binance Coin capture a lot of that value in the space purely because of this new smart chain that was launched, which, like I said, is a lot of people see to be a, a really serious competitor to Ethereum. 
explain a little bit more what's happening in the decentralized finance space and how Binance fits into this debate. Because one thing for I think people would be interested to hear is what is the adoption rate of the Binance chain? Are people migrating across from Ethereum? Have they started to realize it? One of the big objections, let's just pause here and explain to people that one of the big objections to Ethereum as the architecture for this new financial system is the cost of doing it or what they call the gas fees. It's very expensive. You want to move crypto from one account to another one, it's expensive. You want to borrow money using the Ethereum blockchain, it's expensive, right? So where does Binance fit into this debate? Absolutely. So I'm actually so glad you brought that up, Kieran. So thinking of a car and like the sort of performance of the engine, what you're saying is exactly right. So all of these amazing applications on Ethereum, whether it be lending, liquidity, whatever it is, you've got to pay this gas or transaction fee every time you use it. And then the time it takes for that transaction to complete is dependent on, like you said, the how this blockchain is set up. So if we just do a direct comparison between Ethereum and Binance Smart Chain, the average transaction fee on Binance Smart Chain is about between three US cents and five US cents. But if we look at the exact same transaction on the Ethereum network, it usually averages about $1.12, but users who have been using it recently will tell you that's probably a little bit closer to $20 to $30. Um, So you're looking at essentially using the Ethereum network costs you about 50 times as much per transaction at the moment. And in terms of confirmation times, Transactions are generally confirmed on the Binance Smart Chain within three seconds, whereas the Ethereum chain can take up to 13 seconds. So if we just do a fee and speed comparison, you can see why the BSC chain has been eating up, so to speak, so much of the Ethereum market cap. That's interesting. Three cents on the Binance chain compared to, and I was looking at this quite recently on the Ethereum blockchain, you, you, times you're paying $50. You're paying- $50, $60, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we're talking about the exact same transaction. Yeah. So when I said the Binance smart chain was EVM compatible, for you know, there's no need to go into technicals. All it means is that if I have an application that's currently running on Ethereum, I've got to charge my users or the network's going to charge my users $50 to use that application. But I can take the exact same application that will do the exact same thing, drop it on Binance Smart Chain, and now the user only has to pay five US cents. Very interesting. And of course, the, the other thing is what you just mentioned is the speed. I mean, if you're clearing through the blockchain, the Binance Chain, in three, what, what did you say, three seconds? Three seconds, three seconds, correct. I mean, that, that is almost like Visa and MasterCard type speeds, which does raise an interesting question. There's been a lot of hype and a lot of talk about decentralized finance. What we might be looking at is a future where you have centralized finance. You you have Binance actually owning and controlling this new architecture. What do you think? So I think coming back, you mentioned our founder, Shangping Zhao, or like we affectionately call him CZ. I think one of the great things that, that he's done that perhaps a lot of the, the other exchanges haven't done is, you know, the long-term view for the entire sector is always that decentralization should be the key. But in the short term, you know, it, it's a new sector you've got to have certain centralized services to to help users navigate, you know, this new space. But CZ realized that the long-term view is definitely for everything to be decentralized. So like you correctly said, we've got the Binance Exchange, which is completely centralized, and you've got your trading, your futures, et cetera. But in parallel to that, we've built out a decentralized exchange 
and the Binance Smart Chain. And the goal of the Binance Smart Chain pretty much is to become the, the underlying infrastructure for decentralized finance across the world. So I think CZ's got a, a very good sort of long-term view or strategy in the sense that we've covered the centralized market, but at the same time, we're preparing for that future shift towards decentralization. How would that work in practical terms? Because it is an owned exchange and it is an owned blockchain. In other words, it's, it's a centralized exchange at the moment. Are you proposing at some point that that will be made open source and available to everybody and there won't be a single point of ownership? Absolutely. So I think one thing that a lot of people often you know, get a little bit confused with is it is called the Binance Smart Chain, correct? But the Binance Smart Chain is actually not, to be honest, it wasn't even created by Binance. So it was an open community initiative from developers and resources across the world. So as it stands, the Binance Smart Chain is decentralized. It's run by 21 open validators. So that aspect of the Binance ecosystem is sort of already decentralized. But what Binance does in the value add sense is it's all great and well to say, hey, here's a blockchain that you can deploy applications on. But like we said, being a new technology, um, just sort of giving somebody the technology layer isn't really conducive to teaching people to build great businesses, all of the technical complexities. And that's why, as well as offering the Binance Smart Chain, which, like we said, has all of these amazing features, Binance also supports projects on the Binance Smart Chain. So we've um, launched a $100 million <clears throat> accelerator fund for projects that are building on Binance Smart Chain to incentivize new development resources to come onto the smart chain. Um, just a few weeks ago, we announced a $1 million um, fund for Binance Smart Chain development that's exclusively earmarked for Africa. And then of course, we help them with things like marketing, PR support, um, some expert advice in, t uh, advice in terms of technical development. Uh, so I think Binance really incubates that, that BSC ecosystem, but as it stands, it, it you know it is a decentralized project. Can I, for example, go onto the to Binance at the moment and borrow money using crypto as collateral, the same way that I could do with Uniswap or with Oasis? Are you there yet? Absolutely, absolutely. So if you head over to crypto loans, you'll see that um, what Binance has done. So you know your the likes of your Uniswaps, your Pancake Swaps. Um, all of these liquidity protocols, et cetera, they, they are quite difficult for, for new people to interact with. So Binance as the centralized exchange, so Binance.com, we've sort of provided access channels to these products through our centralized exchange. So we handle all the technical complexity of adding liquidity, removing liquidity, ensuring that it's done safely. Uh, and we sort of just give you access to those products from the Binance.com front end. I think that's one of the big criticisms of decentralized finance as it is. It's a little bit crude and rudimentary at the moment. For example, if you want to borrow money, there's nobody you can talk to. You know, you, you're basically uh, dealing with a, a piece of computer code. Do you solve that problem at what? Binance? Yeah, 100%. So I think this comes back to Binance realizing that, um, you know, unless you have this sort of incubated environment, just the tech alone is not going to do it. Um, so with Binance, that's why we've sort of not only created access to these products, but throughout the Binance Academy, et cetera, we've created a lot of content to ensure that users are 
completely understand exactly what it is they're doing, how these products work. Um, and of course, you know, the Binance customer service is always happy to help users understand or navigate any of these products. So absolutely, I think Binance.com really ties together um, both the access to these amazing innovations with, you know, the human element um, of helping users understand and navigate it. Binance is an astonishing success story. I was just looking at the market cap of Binance Coin. It's $40 billion just today. So all of that wealth has been created in the last three years. Now, it started out as a crypto-only exchange, though you obviously made it possible for people to open accounts with fiat currencies like the rand and the dollar. So that clearly has not been an impediment to growth. But give us an idea. What's the customer sign-up rate in the last six months while we've been through this tremendous boom in cryptos? So I think, uh, funnily enough, going back to, I think, the most infamous period in Bitcoin's history, um, towards the latter parts of 2017, um, you know, that bull run was really characterized by, and, you know, living through that, it's so interesting looking back at it now, people were literally, the, the user onboarding rate was so aggressive that exchanges had to shut down um, new user signups because they couldn't handle the load. And to give you an idea of the severity of this, People were selling their absolutely blank accounts. So username, password, that's it. They were selling access to blank accounts for thousands of dollars, um, you know, on platforms like Amazon and eBay, et cetera. So fortunately, um, I think the the industry, um, you know, we've got a nice use case to prepare us. So we were sort of capacitated for that load that came in um, during that, that huge bull run. But it comes back to 2017. I mean, it's very, very familiar. So the user onboarding rate has just been unreal. Um, so the amount of new people coming into the crypto space, registering accounts, um, even doing things like upgrading the tiers on their accounts. Um, you know, it, it, since December, I mean, we're looking at a magnitude of between three and five times what we were seeing, um, you know, before crypto really started to take off. Wow. Three, three to five times just in December just from December. And, and your baptism really was in 2017 during the prior bull market when, of course, I know exactly what you're talking about. You couldn't open accounts for months. There was just, uh, exactly. the backlog was so great. It, it's just, it's unbelievable. So like I said, I think uh, the industry learned its lesson at that stage. So, you know, I mean, looking across the industry, uh, we haven't seen this problem uh, arise this time, but I can guarantee you that it's not been because of lack of user interest. So the, the the sort of acceleration in user adoption has been very similar to what we've seen in 2017. Interestingly enough, um, or we're seeing a lot more uh, institutional engagement or at least conversations coming from your traditional institutions, which you know I personally find quite reassuring. Give us an idea about that. What kind of institutions are we talking about? Are they finance institutions? Are they companies that are looking to invest some of their treasury assets in Bitcoin? What is that? Absolutely. So I think, you know, with Bitcoin recently crossing the, the trillion dollar market cap, the likes of your, your Michael Saylor's, your Grayscale's really championing the, the investment use case and asset allocation sort of um, case for crypto. We're seeing a lot of your traditional asset managers take it a lot more seriously. So, um, you know, the likes of your, your boutique asset management firms, hedge fund type structures. So obviously they've got a lot less red tape to be able to jump in the industry, um, sort of get their feet wet. But interestingly enough, we've also seen a lot of interest from your 
very large traditional financial legacy institutions looking at particular use cases, so uh, which has been quite refreshing, like using stable coins um, to serve a certain remittance markets, for example. Um, so I think we're seeing both the investment interest come in, you know, on the back of the likes of your Michael Saylors, your Grayscales. But interestingly enough, and for the first time, we're seeing your traditional finance institutions look at ways that they can leverage the, the underlying technology to improve their current sort of services. What's the demographic profile of your customers? Are they young? Are they traders, investors? How do you categorize them? And I mean, people have been spoiled by this bull run. You know, they, they invest money in cryptos and they expect, you know, immediate gain. But of course, this is extremely volatile. You know, we've lived through an 84% drawdown in Bitcoin just in the last three years. So 30 to 50% drawdowns are not uncommon. So give us an idea of the profile of these people who are signing up. So particularly during um, these periods of price appreciation, we see a lot more of user onboarding, I mean, retail user onboarding. But in terms of the consumer behavior, it, it, like I said, it really is quite split. So you've got your retail users that are really broken down into active traders who are actively engaging in these new opportunities in the market daily. Um, you know, Binance launch pool, like the new Alice project we launched. Um, amazingly enough, if you haven't taken that, a look at that. Um, on launch day, it, it went up um, about 26,000%. So you've got a lot of these... Really Sorry, just, just pause users. there. Explain that. Yeah. What, what is that project? <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, that always catches the attention. So Binance Launch Pool is basically a way where instead of buying a new project, you can actually earn them... Um, before they launch. So if you had some BNB that maybe you'd invested um, and you could have just chucked it into the launch pool with additional zero additional risk and you could have earned some of these tokens. So the listing price of them, I think, was about 12, um, 12 US cents or 10 US cents. And the high that it hit yesterday, so it was listed yesterday and the high price it traded at yesterday was about 72 US dollars. Um, before coming to about 25 USD. So there's some really interesting, again, please, these are high-risk opportunities. So, you know, engaging with these sort of products, which is like DeFi, yield farming, um, we see a lot more of your younger type of, of users engaging with that, people who are a lot more active on the platform, um, you know, actively trading altcoins. And we see a lot of buy and hold behavior from your, I, I wouldn't call them, older retail users, but um, people who it's clear that they're, they're just investing in the long term in crypto. And then, like I said as well, as of late, we've seen a lot of uh, institutional, not so much institutional investors, but your more traditional players like um, hedge funds, asset managers, etc., taking, you know, serious looks and really dabbling in the space um, a lot more than, you know, Know, previous periods. I think 2017 was driven entirely by retail interest. Um, you know, no matter what the price was doing, your traditional players didn't want to hear the word Bitcoin. But um, I think this this period we've seen characterized by a lot more institutional interest. Even if they haven't deployed capital, they, they're seriously looking at, you know, getting meaningfully involved in the space. And so I think you've got your, your active people, you've got your your hodlers, as we call them in the space, mm. um, your true believers, they really just buy and hold, so they're quite dormant in the accounts. And, you know, we've got more institutional type players who, um, you know, actually have some very interesting strategies. 
Looking at the trading that's happening on the exchange from a South African point of view, what are the assets that are the most traded? Is it Bitcoin? Does it more or less go Bitcoin, Ethereum, Binance coin? Is that how it goes? The top three? Exactly, exactly. So as you would expect, um, you know, that is where we see the majority of trading within South Africa. Uh, so South African users are uh, quite boring in that sense, I'd say. But, um, you know, generally across all markets, that that's what we see. Your, your trading is really concentrated um, according to market cap. Looking to the rest of Africa, what's the crypto adoption rate in places like Nigeria and Kenya? You, you are the country manager for Kenya as well. And how does that compare with South Africa? So I think specifically within those three markets, you know, it's, it's no secret that finance has been growing aggressively. Um, I think the uptake we've seen has been a lot more significant than a lot of your smaller regions in Africa. And, you know, I think we've mentioned this before. One thing that's quite interesting is we all know that within the African continent, remittances is a massive pain point. So in your first world countries, you see uptake according to sort of investment interests, right? Uh, uh, to be a bit facetious, people get interested when number goes up. But in Africa, we've seen, of course, that that sort of investment interest, you know, everybody is, is interested when you see the prices appreciating like this. But also we've seen a lot of sort of fundamental adoption in Africa. So people utilizing these these tools, you know, stable coins to make remittances overseas, using the P2P market to do um, immediate and free inter-African remittance. And I think that's why we've seen, particularly in markets like Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa, South Africa to a lesser degree, um, such large uptake from retail users, because not only are they trading and investing, but they're actually using crypto for essentially what what you know it was created for to perform remittances into african transfers and some very interesting other things i think an interesting yeah. point on that uh, the bill gates foundation found that five percent of africa's gdp goes on remittance fees that shows you how big an industry this is in africa and the World Bank did a study on this, and the fees are outrageous. You're paying about 12% on average for a small transaction. If you were sending money from South Africa to Kenya, the typical fee would be 12%, believe it or not. 12% of that gets siphoned off in fees. And then you've got companies like Paxful, Paxful spelled P-A-X-F-U-L, that comes along, and they reduce that to about 1%. I mean, this is a market that is begging to be disrupted by cryptos. So just talk about that for a minute and the, the, the kind of fees that can be charged. And these stable coins, and for people who don't know, stable coin is a crypto that is backed by fiat currency. So you got, uh, there's even a stable coin for the RAND, XR, which is backed one-to-one -one by the RAND. You've got uh, Trust USD, you've got USD coin. These are all backed by the US dollar. So you can ship these monies across board instantly at very low fees. Just talk about that for a minute. Absolutely. So, I mean, just to chat, let's use Binance as stablecoin as an example. So Binance has um, Binance USD or BUSD, which is essentially backed one-to-one -one by the dollar. It's, it's audited, regulated um, in by the New York State financial regulators. But for all intents and purposes, it's a dollar. But because it exists on blockchain rails, it allows us to transfer that dollar the same way that we would you know, transfer things on DeFi protocols. So we spoke just a few minutes ago about the fact that it takes three US cents um, on average to make the transaction on the Binance Smart Chain, while BUSD also lives on the Binance Smart Chain, 
which means that I could send somebody a dollar, whether they be, so I'm like you uh, mentioned, I'm sitting here in Durban. I could send someone a dollar, whether they be sitting in Kenya or they be sitting in the United States. One single dollar. And I could perform that transaction for three US cents and it would take me approximately three seconds. So if you just look at that, I think it's hard for people to even fathom that that potential next to, you know, the traditional systems we just spoke about, because whether it's $1, I can now efficiently send $1 in three seconds, and it would cost me three US cents, or I could send $100, and it would still only cost me three US cents. And if you sent a billion dollars? It would still cost me three US cents. Right. That's right. It's just a so piece I of think code. The, yeah, exactly. Because the, the amount of data you're essentially sending doesn't really vary much between a dollar and a million dollars. I mean, the fact that you could frictionlessly send $50, you know, for, for a fee of three US cents, um, in terms of these micro remittances, particularly, you know, expats living abroad, sending money home, um, this creates an unbelievable potential for them. But, you know, I, I think we we need to take it one step further. So it's all good and well that somebody can send me BUSD sitting here in South Africa, but I can't really go to spa or pick and pay and, you know, spend that BUSD on some clover milk, some bread, whatever it may be. Well, that's where Binance P2P comes in. So it's basically a crypto fiat peer-to-peer marketplace. So all I would essentially do is someone sends me $100 of value using BUSD, I then immediately sell that on Binance P2P to somebody who wants 100 BUSD and they pay me directly into my bank account. And Binance's P2P service is 100% free, which essentially means somebody could send me $100 from Europe and within 10 to 15 minutes, I could have 1,500 rand sitting in my bank account at a cost of three to five US cents. And, And if you look at that relative to current rails, it, it just seems unbelievable. But I promise you, that is what we can do right now. So all of this conversion that happens, I mean, you're sending a, a Binance USD to somebody you know, on the other end of the world. All that happens in the background is there's some very fancy technical stuff. But at the end of the day, you've got $100 in your bank account, and this is all happening in seconds. Exactly. And at a fraction of the cost. This, my friends, is what's happening in uh, in the crypto space. This is really uh, quite something. You know, a, a lot of MoneyWeb readers are, are trying to understand how do they get started in this space? And uh, what would your advice be to them? Obviously, open up a, an account with a crypto exchange. And um, then what? What do they do? Absolutely. And this is from my own personal opinion. One of the biggest mistakes people make is they see the price going up and immediately they want to register and buy something without actually understanding the value proposition of crypto, blockchain in general, or the specific project, right? So we went through um, some of the fundamentals of Binance Coin or BNB recently. Um, So I think, you know, there's a lot of freely available, exceptional knowledge out there. Um, So, you know, your sources of knowledge like YouTube, like MoneyWeb Crypto, but also Binance Academy. So if there's anything you want to know about a specific Binance product, and not just all the, the, the sort of technical elements, but also how you would use that product to make a profit, for example, how to effectively trade, Binance has compiled a number of resources on pretty much anything you can think of. 
and it's available on the Binance Academy. So my advice to you would be set up an account, you know, complete your, your KYC verification, because as a new user, you're going to need to either deposit some funds or use a card. And then before you actually do anything, go to the Binance Academy and literally start on the article called What is Bitcoin? And once you understand the value proposition of the sector, get your feet wet. So, um, you know, the, the traditional finance buffs um, recommend a, a sort of one to between one to five percent allocation of your portfolio to crypto based on obviously your risk tolerance. Uh, I think this is a, a good point to, to mention. This is not financial advice. Mm. Um, but, you know, that that is, a I think, a, a general process that people can follow when they're just getting started. I, I can just hear all these these young guys there with, with a far more aggressive risk appetite saying, you know, what, 1% to 5%, are you kidding me? I'm all yeah, in 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've got to make a disclosure there. I am personally, again, not financial advice, but I'm personally about 90 to 95% in crypto. Brenton, we're out of time here. Final question, just very quickly. What, what is in the pipeline from, from Binance? There's a lot of interesting things happening. You talked about the Binance economy, uh, Academy. We spoke about the Binance coin, which is just a phenomenal story. The Binance exchange itself and the products, what's coming down the pipeline? So I think we've seen some amazing stuff happen on Binance Smart Chain, um, which has led to this BNB value appreciation. But we've got to remember that we were still only launched, the Binance Smart Chain was only launched in September of last year. Um, you know, that that's just leaving aside COVID as well. So with the $100 million accelerator fund, um, some of the, the early stage projects that are still being incubated in the space, uh, I think there's still a lot of a huge amounts of growth. You know, people are looking at, BNB and DeFi at the moment. And I think this really is just the beginning. So I think we're going to see some amazing new um, updates, protocols, and projects launch on the Binance Smart Chain. And then from the Binance side, many of you may have seen, we recently launched Binance Pay, um, which is one step further towards that sort of new finance world of crypto um, banking the world, essentially. So with Binance Pay, whether you are a business, whether you're a user, you can actually start sending and receiving crypto payments across the world um, at almost no cost. So I think seeing Binance Pay rollout and as well as a few of the, the early stage BSC projects over the next few months is definitely going to keep both the Binance team and our users quite busy. We're going to leave it there, Brenton, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how this year rolls out for Binance. We're going to stay in touch and we're going to get an update from you, I'm sure, in the weeks to come. That was Brenton Nyker, who is country manager for Binance South Africa and Kenya. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.